With threats to our nation waiting around every corner, adaptability is more important than ever. When conditions change without notice, quick strategic thinking is crucial. And with obstacles consistently impending, determination is essential in overcoming them. It's this willingness, decisiveness, and resilience that sets Marines apart. With our fighting spirit, we don't just fight battles, we win them. Marines are the constant our nation counts on to fight the unknown. And through adaptable problem solving, we do just that. Learn more at Marines.com. Welcome to the College Football Survivor Show, where playoff survival is always on the line. Here's Shahan J. Haraja and Babak Hayeri. Hey again, everybody. What a fun weekend of college football. And we're back to talk about what's going on in the college football playoff. This is the College Football Survivor Show. I'm Bob Akhairi, and I'm joined, as always, by my great co-host, Shehan Jayaraja from CBSSports.com. There's so much things to talk about. You know, what What foremost is on your mind after really just there's a lot of drama going on. We're going to try and hit on a lot of it. I mean, the coaching carousel is now arguably in full steam. But where do you begin? Where, what, what topic first comes to your mind? Yeah, I mean, so this past weekend, uh, my some of my friends had a baby shower for for me and my wife. And so, you know, we were we were going to take Sunday, be very low key and kind of, you know, not have to worry too much about college football. And then Texas A&M set $77 million on fire. It was crazy. And so, uh, you know, I, I tried not to let it distract too much from uh, from obviously our celebration. But that is so much money. That That is so much money to just throw away. It is it is crazy. On the more football front, uh, it was obviously good to see Michigan kind of get some competition, and I thought that they they uh, handled themselves pretty well against Penn State. But I, I just I can't get over the fact that Jimbo Fisher actually got fired. <laughs> well, first of all, congratulations on the on the baby shower thank and all you, of that stuff. You. But yeah, I. The numbers are great. I, I I know some people like to wring their hands and say, oh, what is the state of society? You know, we live in a society or whatever, you know, that that money like this is being <laughs> spent. But I just get entertained mostly because it's it's dumb money. You know, there's it's not being taken from something. You know, we're not going and 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 taking money from, uh, you know, public elementary schools or something. People just want to be done with their money and they are creating these contracts and if they're really upset about it, they wouldn't pay them out or they would, you know, strike at the administrations that signed them, but they're not. So I'm amused by it. I think it's interesting. I think there's been some good kind of breakdown of how it's actually going to pay to Jimbo. I'm amazed. First of all, the stars in all of this are not the administrators or not the coaches are not, you know, the journalists who find this stuff out. It's the agents, the agents and all of this, <laughs> like they deserve every penny that they earn because whoever whoever like i still think whoever gave whoever represented charlie weiss in the past is one of the best one of the all-time great agents because at one point he was being paid by two teams simultaneously not the coach there so i think these agents are earning their pay and uh much to the detriment of some of these fan bases and perhaps hoping that this money could go elsewhere but it's it's a heck of a thing i am i'm wondering if we're going to see because now my question is, are we going to start seeing those still coming? I mean, to an extent, you know, Michigan State got a bit of a mulligan with the whole way Mel Tucker ended, but they were almost in that same circumstance and they were being disappointed by what they were seeing on the field. But with Texas A&M, I wonder if the next coach, is there going to be that kind of brinksmanship? Like they're going to want to get those big candidates. They probably have, a, I hope they have a candidate in mind. If you fire a head coach, 
after he wins a game 50 to whatever, you know, <laughs> when he when he win that many points and suddenly, you know, the wheels are already in motion. But I'm wondering if they have someone in mind and that person knows Texas A&M wants them. Is there going to be that like, well, we don't want to give you as big of a payout as we offered Jimbo? Are they are they going to say like, well, no, I know you're good for it. You just paid it out. I know you're good for it. So I'm kind of wondering how that's going to play out in the next round of negotiations for that position. Well, I think for me, like, I don't I don't think that anybody should be afraid that they're not going to get their money <laughs> if, if they go to Texas A&M. They're going to. The other piece that's really interesting to me heading forward, and I'm working on a piece right now at CBSSports.com about it, is, is this a warning sign to these places that are giving out these mega contracts? Because... You know, we'll put, obviously, Nick Saban and Kirby Smart to the side because they kind of, you know, per se earned their contracts through winning multiple national championships at their places. But you look at, uh, obviously, the 1095 that both Jimbo Fisher and Mel Tucker got and how those worked out. You look at the 1095 that Brian Kelly got at LSU. It hasn't been horrible, but, but you know, I think it's been a little disappointing. You look at the 10-year, $110 million contract that Lincoln Riley got. You know, it's, again, I think he's still going to be fine, but it has not been, I don't think, as seamless as people hoped. And... And you look at the 1075 that Jim, that uh, James Franklin got at Penn State and for him to still be notably behind the rest of his peers. So I do think that this should be seen as a little bit of a warning sign that it's not just the amount of money because there are coaches that make a lot of money. That's not the point. It's the way that you lock yourselves into these situations to where it is going to define again, Texas AM is going to be paying a Bobby Bonilla $7 million contract for the next eight years. That is nuts. They're going to be paying more than $7 million every single year for a guy not to coach, which is more than most programs pay to have an actual coach. So it'll be interesting to see. Maybe we'll learn nothing from it, especially in the SEC. We know how how money flows, but <laughs> it is. I mean, this, this is a day that I thought was going to come maybe next year. The fact that it's here already is unbelievable. Yeah, I mean, and for better or worse, AM fans and the administration are going to be hearing about this year after year for the next however many years until they pay this out. And, and afterwards as well. Um, I think there's going to be mock celebrations of, you know, Jimbo Fisher Day at, at A&M. <laughs> <laughs> but hey, you know, if if but if they hire the right guy and. They start winning again really quick. People will ignore that and they'll laugh it off and say like, yeah, but it was worth it. And that's what they want. I mean, uh, you hear that again and again, a lot of this crazy money in Texas because a lot of those guys want to go to the office on Monday and feel proud that their team won. And they're very, very, very serious about that. Clearly, you know, it, (laughs) it almost makes me think I was thinking of, um, of uh, uh, James Franklin. And I think it would be very appropriate for Penn State to build him a bronze statue because he constantly comes in third. And that would be the most fitting way to honor his legacy at Penn State. Ten wins, third place, consistently, just like clockwork. And, you know, maybe I, I couldn't resist that one. I just, I, I'm, I'm absolutely, my, my, he's mind-boggling to me. I don't know how they continue to fall short. Part of it almost, I'm almost getting into a zone where I'm like, is he just cursed? You know, because some of this, you can't just, it, uh, you know, you, you see what happens on the field. You see how Drew Aller kind of isn't quite developing where they thought they were, would hope he would be as a five-star. Um, you see a strong defense, and yet you see they just keep, it just doesn't come together. And year after year, 
So that's the next one, I think, on the block. I don't I'm not saying he's on the hot seat or anything, but I now he's gonna be, I think, the next ongoing saga story, at least in the future, because now that Jimbo's because Jimbo is taking everybody's attention. It's like, well, it could be worse. It could be Texas AM. But now he's off the table. Now I'm wondering who who's gonna be the next focus for kind of this this kind of buzz about will they finally get rid of him or not? No, it's a good question. And they decided to fire offensive coordinator uh, Mike Yersich uh, after their struggles offensively against Michigan. But like this, this isn't the first time. I, I mean, Kirk Soraka was obviously somebody uh, who was very highly touted coming in, ended up uh, getting fired after one year as well. Ricky Ronnie ended up becoming uh, head coach at Old Dominion. So, you know, he had some success. Similar deal with Joe Moorhead. He moved over to, to Oregon. But like, I believe that this is going to be his sixth offensive coordinator, James Franklin's at Penn State. That, that's a lot of offensive coordinators, and most were not successful. So I do think that certainly he has some questions to ask of himself, but they got to get this thing figured out. <laughs> is the offensive coordinator of Penn State the drummer of Spinal Tap? <laughs> and does that reference even land anymore? I have no idea. I don't. I don't. I don't pretend to to, to know these things. I. I I will drop references in my class and a bunch of people who are now old enough to vote have no idea what I'm talking about. And I'm like, really? That one, that one no longer works. But, um, you know, one other thing that kind of fascinating, especially as we kind of review sort of who we have in our rankings and who we're going to have to move out of the, uh, the Island here in the college football survivor show. Um, apparently this is the first time since 1973 that five P five or what we now consider P five teams are 10 and zero undefeated now granted 1973 you could have ties so we had something that would be delicious to have this year which is ohio state and michigan were both 10 0 and 1 because they were tied <laughs> each other which would be insane but you had you know a 10 0 and 1 oklahoma you had a uh, 11 and 0 notre dame which won the ap but of course back in those days the coaches still voted before the bowl game so even though they, they beat Alabama. Alabama shared the title with them. And uh, we had a 12-0 Penn State, which also came in fifth, because even back in those days, I got no respect. But um, going into this, it's kind of fascinating. It makes me wonder, like all that said, imagine if we were still in the BCS. Imagine where we would be. Imagine the kind of crisis we'd be having right now. Or go, go before that. I remember the Bull Alliance. I remember the Bull Coalition. Imagine if we were trying to patchwork, like, who's going to match up against who? Maybe. And then, you know, we're going to get stuck with the winner of Ohio State, Michigan, going into the Rose Bowl, which actually this year would have been a good game. You know, if it were a traditional Rose Bowl, we'd have it against presumably Oregon or Washington. And that would be actually a heck of a match. Maybe that would be it. That would end up being our national champion because the others would be kind of spread out everywhere. Maybe you get, you know, somewhat interesting in the Sugar Bowl, you know, against the SEC. But who knows? I mean, it's just fascinating to imagine where we're at right now and where we could have been. And then. Not we're not in the 12 team playoff yet, but man, I can't wait. This is I still think this is the perfect run up. I'm hoping for a little bit of chaos at the end of this season. Somebody gets left out. A lot of people get angry. We need that. I want that kind of frustration to 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 get people into this 12 team playoff zone because that's what I'd love to see right now. Yeah, no, no doubt about it. And I will mention, by the way, uh, the college football playoff because this is a college football playoff show did announced their new executive director back on Friday. And uh, we got a chance to speak to him. The media did on Monday. And uh, they're going from a longtime sports executive in uh, in Bill Hancock, who had administered Final Fours and all this sort of stuff, 
So now they're going to an Air Force general, Richard M. Clark, who has spent the last three years as the uh, superintendent of the Air Force Academy, basically the equivalent of a university president. Uh, and he has never had a full-time role in college football. So this is going to be kind of an interesting dynamic, bringing in somebody well from the outside to make a lot of very important decisions about college football. I'll have a piece up on CBSports.com about that as well. So make sure and check that out. I'm looking forward to that because I greatly enjoyed Bill Hancock. I've, I've talked to him many different media days, just running into him. He'd be sitting on the side, just have a casual conversation with him and a charming guy. And he's obviously been the head of the CFP since its formation. Um, but I'm very curious to see a different motivation and, and a different personality, especially one coming from a very regimented military background. I think there's a lot of potential there or, you know, maybe a very, I, I don't know. I'm, I'm actually very <laughs> much looking forward to this. This is, this is exciting. It's, it's good to see change in a lot of this stuff. You know, one thing I just want to touch on, only because I figured since technically my background, I am an attorney, I wanted to just mention what's going on at Michigan because I, I, I sometimes will read things and you can tell folks are trying their hardest and they'll put words in quotes that just don't need to be in quotes because you can tell they're like, it's their way of saying, like, I've been told this is called a preliminary injunction. <laughs> and I'm kind of like, oh, OK, yeah, yeah, that, that, that is what it's called. So just I'm going to be super quick here because this is a little bit, you know, we try to keep it focused on the field, but certainly this is affecting what's going on on the field. So for those who somehow missed it, um, as Michigan was on the plane on Saturday, the Big Ten decided to take their take their sweep, their their take their swipe at them, and has suspended Jim Harbaugh for the rest of the regular season, um, which included last week's game and two more games to be played at a future date. Um, <laughs> and Michigan was ready, and then the, the joke that's been going around, and Michigan alumni are very adamant about this, they have lots of lawyers who went to Michigan, and they have applied in law school, all of that stuff, but and a beautiful law library. But they decided to immediately strike back and try and get a temporary, temporary restraining order, or TRO. And now they're apparently going for a preliminary injunction. Some people may be curious, what's the difference? Well, a temporary restraining order... And a preliminary injunction do actually basically the same thing. They just have different steps in when you can pull them off. A TRO or temporary restraining order is the moment you hear about something, you can go to a judge and without even allowing the other side to come in and speak. Oh, they, they can, but just for whatever reason, it's such an emergency that you need to say, look, this is litigation. It's moving forward. But before any of this goes, it's going to be inherently unfair to my side to allow this to go without being litigated in court or, or whatever avenue. So they were they went, they argued to a judge. They said, look, this, this needs to be removed. This needs to be paused until we can talk about this more. And that didn't convince a judge, or at least the court couldn't hear it. And it was, of course, in the middle of Veterans Day. So all kinds of things going there. Um, so that didn't get granted. So now the preliminary injunction is supposedly in play. I've been told by Friday they might move it to federal court. There's a whole side story there. We won't get into it. Preliminary injunction is basically going for the same reasoning, like, let's put this aside until we have a chance to litigate it and talk about in court through discovery, all of the wonderful steps. But it allows the other side to also have an opportunity to reply. So you, you, the, defend, the, the, pardon me, the, uh, the defendant has to be part of that conversation. So that's the difference between the two. The TRO is just kind of your first, like, throw that out there. This sounds crazy to allow this to, to sit before, uh, before we have a chance to litigate it. Preliminary injunction, the same thing, but the other side also gets a talk. So, um, <laughs> or must talk. So that's where we are now. We'll see where it goes. You know, Michigan gets Maryland this weekend. So theoretically, there could be a way for Harbaugh to, to coach in that game. And then we'll see where that goes. I am 
if I were if I were to kind of predict whatever the result is on Friday, will probably hold until the end of the regular season. So what does that mean? I think if he's not coaching against Maryland, I don't think he's going to be coaching against Ohio State. I think it's going to go for the following two weeks. Then we get into the whole morass, the legal, the wheels of justice turn slowly. <laughs> so I always joke whenever these things happen. Are we going to get a win or a loss? Uh, this will be safely in the win column in two to three years, pending uh, you know pending appeals. You know, I, I'm not sure. So, and that that's absolutely part of this game. I mean, with the sheer stakes that are going on right now, Michigan wants us to go as slow as possible, and a court system, a justice system that we have in this country, which I love and support, is designed to allow things to move slowly for the sake of justice so we don't rush things. And that's to the benefit if you're trying to get your coach to still coach in a couple of months, which really ain't any time in the litigation process. So I just wanted to lay that out there since some of you might be curious and you hear about it and you just never never quite understand what's going on. I love law. I teach it. So it's always fun to kind of bring it up. Definitely. I mean, obviously, so many moving parts right now. And that's one of the things, right, is that Michigan was trying to get this through quick enough so that they could maybe the morning of the game uh, get get an answer to this question. Obviously, there's a lot of reasons, like uh, like Bobak mentioned, why that was unlikely in the first place. But uh, yeah, it's a lot of legal maneuvering, uh, perfect for a fan base of lawyers, like you said, the University of Michigan. And uh, with that, we have some swift justice to exact, by the way, though. We, we I think, uh, won't need to have too much discussion about this. Penn State and Ole Miss both lose this week. Both are on the chopping block and both had hilarious votes with our Twitter users. Uh, 98.4% of Penn State uh, of people believe that Penn State should be kicked off the island. 95.1% believe that Ole Miss should be gone. Uh, I'm going to go ahead and agree with both of them. And uh, yeah, Penn State, Ole Miss, you're gone. Yeah, I, I, I just wonder who the contrarians were, where they just sort of <laughs> <laughs> purely just wanted to spite everyone else. But I, I, yeah, I agree. They they were in that wonderful stage of the season. We are definitely coalescing on those teams that are, have the most serious opportunities to go all the way. So I agree with that. Now, I was even debating, like, should we bring up Louisville? But they're still they're still a chaos agent. They're the remaining team chaos player out there, which with enough nonsense we still have two weeks of regular season left could go their way it could it could end up in their way but they need a, still a hell of a lot of help i am curious to see and i'm not going to bring them up i'm not going to nominate them to be included but there's still two teams out there that i'm i'm not totally giving up on because i think there is a backdoor way after this past weekend mizzou suddenly got my attention again because they absolutely wrecked tennessee so they're third play but i think they're out only because they don't really have any opportunities to prove themselves again they've got two weak teams i mean they finished with arkansas they're not going to go to the sec title game i think they're out oregon state's the other one because now they get the really crazy part of their schedule and they're already fairly high up there i'd be very curious to see what happens if oregon state wins out um but i don't think it'll be enough so i don't think they should be included but i think those two are our are our chaos agents right now but mostly oregon state only because they can actually go out there and mess up a few of these these remaining few on the island. If Oregon State wins this week against Washington, 
then I think that we should at least have a vote to put them back in. But otherwise, I think we're probably down to nine. I, I think that that's probably the list of teams that have a chance. Uh, obviously, things to mention, James Madison, of course, not eligible despite being undefeated. Uh, Air Force, we had a conversation about a few weeks ago, completely decided to fall apart in front of us. Uh, and Tulane with a loss to Ole Miss, they're not going to have a chance to get in. So I think we're at the nine right now that really have a chance. And uh, I think from now, I mean, again, look, we have the ability to add teams whenever we want, but I think we're going to do more whittling than adding at this point. And Liberty, we know you exist, but sorry, no. <laughs> <laughs> so I, I just had to put that one out there. You can go 13-0, and 0 and we're all going to go like, yeah, but we really haven't played anybody. I mean, it's cool you guys get to play New Mexico State again in the Conference USA title game, but ain't going to be enough. We love we love you guys. We love, I love Jerry Kill's team, but yeah. Anyway, yeah, so it looks like we've got, and and I think genuinely these are going to be the, the only potential finalists pending and real wackiness in Oregon State winning out. We're going to see Georgia, Michigan, Ohio State, Florida State, Washington, Oregon, Alabama, Texas, and our wild card Louisville um, sitting out there. So that's who we've got on the island, and I think, I think that's a good. I think that's a good ranking. I'm very curious to see. I think we're going to see who, how it all pans out. But uh, I think that's that's it. We've got a, our island is shrinking as it should. So next, we're going to focus a little bit on coaches and what does. A college football playoff contender look like, at least the people who lead those teams. We're going to have that discussion next here on the College Football Survivor Show. The College Football Survivor Show, where playoff survival is always on the line. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. So now let's take a look at, at coaches and coaching because you can't have a college football playoff contender team without the type of staff that you need to lead it. And we thought this was a good time to bring it up because the coaching carousel has started anew. We've seen, obviously, we talked at the beginning of the show, Texas A&M has let go of their head coach, but also their opponent, Mississippi State, has let go of their head coach because you win, you're fired, you lose, you're Absolutely fired. Uh, Boise State's got a head coaching vacancy. Brady Hoke's announced he's retiring at San Diego State. And of course, we already had the sort of existing vacancies at Northwestern and Michigan State um, already this season. So there's a lot of spots there. And some of these teams, especially AM, especially, you know, Michigan State, arguably as well, have annual expectations of at least contending. For a playoff spot, so let's talk about who who we'd pick. Would you go someone? You know, what sort of what sort of people are we looking for? Are we looking for a Nick Saban? Are we looking for a Ted Lasso? Are we looking for who? What kind of people would we want there? And I, I'm sorry, I had to throw out Ted Lasso because the idea of AM just going completely bonkers and getting someone from like Manchester United has has been in the back of my mind. Well, I think that uh, we've heard the rumor that uh, that AM might go after Ted Lasso, but I think that they call him Dan Campbell these days. But uh, no, that would be that would be funny. That that is a name that's been mentioned. Dan Campbell, by the way, is a Texas A&M former tight end, so he he does have connections. Obviously, that is not going to happen. But you know, I think to take a step back, right? There's 
kind of, I guess, you look at things mathematically when you're building a program. You need to be able to recruit at a high level. You need to be able to develop at a high level. I think that you need to have great organizational skills. You know, I, I think for me, and I'm curious your thoughts on this, I've come around to the idea that I don't think that in the biggest and best jobs in college football that you can be a play caller anymore. I, I think that especially at these elite level programs, I feel like you have to be a CEO. I think you're absolutely right. I There may be some exceptions to the rule that still exist, but I think as a trend in college football, as we progress, especially as all these extra things have been added, vital things to the expectations of a coach, managing an extended, almost never-ending recruiting cycle, managing the portal, bringing in players, you know, dealing with NIL, dealing with all the things that were already in existence. Because, I mean, even before this, like a decade ago, longer, there were some positions that were simply not attractive to some head coaches because they expected so much more than just X's and O's. I can think of USC as a great example. Historically, they're like, oh, well, they get Chris Peterson from at the time Washington. And they were like, he's never going to take that job. He doesn't want to be in Los Angeles and have to deal with being the center of the media universe. To an extent, I'm not sure Lincoln Riley even expected no. what he was getting into no. when he got there with how he deals with the press. But we'll set that aside. But I mean, there were some places where, you know, there was that extra, you're not just an X's and O's guys. You're, you're, you're having to deal with so many more things. And now... Truly you are, because, you know, when we're talking about, I think you're absolutely right. Not only recruiting players, you got to be able to recruit other coaches. You got to be able to recruit them and let them develop. Because, I mean, we could get in a whole conversation about, you know, James Franklin, as we said, you know, he's gone through so many coordinators. So has Nick Saban, but they have two very different reasons of why <laughs> they go through so many coordinators. You know, Saban just creates these people that are, everyone wants to have them now. You know, he takes, he refurbishes toys and suddenly they become the must-have toy of the holiday season when people are looking for coaches. Actually, that kind of works. Uh, <laughs> he's the ultimate. He makes the tickle. God, this is going to be an old reference. He makes the tickle me Elmo dolls that uh, everyone needs. That That is Boy, an old uh, reference. No, I, I know. I know it. It's uh, but, okay. Good. Yeah. All right. I have a feeling you weren't in high school when they came out, but yeah. yeah. <laughs> so, uh, I mean, I think that if you had to boil it down to, to one quality, I think that for me, I mean, it's tough, right? Because like I mentioned, so many, so many things that I think you need to be able to do. But I think that sort of uh, administrative organization at this point is such a huge part of things. And that can be offset a little bit by having a really, really good athletic department. You know, one thing that I always point to is I think that there are two programs that just exist in a different plane in terms of just the way that their athletic departments operate. That's Ohio State and Oklahoma. I think that those two places are built incredibly well. I don't think that other jobs are all like that, even other blue blood jobs. I, you know, one thing, again, not to get too much into Riley, I think we could have a whole uh, off-season conversation about his deal, but like so many things were done for him at Oklahoma. That's not a knock, but I just don't think he realized how many things were done for him at Oklahoma. And I think you're able to do that at Ohio State. You know, it's one reason that, uh, you know, there have been a lot of people who get on me because I probably rate Ryan Day a little lower than most. But part of that is because I think that Ohio State has such a system in place. And I think, though, that if you're not at one of those places, like you look at Nick Saban, it's not just the fact that he obviously has hired great assistants and recruited really well. It's everything he's brought to that organization. It's managing to, to delegate when it's time to delegate. It's, uh, you know, 
courting the boosters in the right way and telling them to go away when it's not time for them to be around. You know, it, just all of that plays in. Now, the thing that you have to say is that it's not foolproof. Two years into the Billy Napier era, he's really good at this stuff. It hasn't worked. That doesn't mean it won't work, but it hasn't worked to this point. So it's a complicated, uh, you know, th- th- nothing comes down to just one thing. But I think that if I had to look for what I was looking for in a coach more than anything, I want somebody who is organized and has an idea of not just what he wants to do on the football field, but what he wants to build in terms of athletic administration. You know, and this is where, you know, I'm, I'm the very strong proponent of, of the brilliance of Nick Saban. I, I, the more you learn about it, the more it's just utterly fascinating. And how he got to Alabama and really built what's there. They had some of the raw elements here and there, but he's the one who wove them or, or put those parts and built the, the, the tower of, the, of success that they have right now. But also, to an extent, he is so able to focus on what it's all about. He's willing to then be, to actually show, I, I, humility may be the wrong word, but he's willing to allow others do what they would do. Their, he hired people because they're talented and it gives them enough room to do what they want to do. Over the years, we've seen his offense adapt when he realized the, the original Alabama Nick Saban teams had to adapt to a, a better offense or at least a, a more you know current offense. And he was willing to allow that. He was willing to go bring in people, bring in the talent that can make that happen. And he isn't necessarily locked into doing things the way he must do. I mean, he, to some extent, he certainly made hints that he isn't always thrilled with the new rules. Um, I, I love his way of basically giving everyone an ominous warning. All right. If you want an IL, you know, we can do it. You're going to be facing, you know, you're going to get what you want and I'll, I'll compete against you guys. But when it comes down to it, he's willing to adapt and he's willing even over the season to adapt because I mean, we can talk and I think we will talk later about the way Alabama has changed across this season because they've been willing to, make a plan that that suits the talent they have on the offense. And now Alabama looks absolutely terrifying compared to where they were a few weeks ago or several weeks ago. But yeah, absolutely. I think that's one of those things and that ability to recruit, manage and keep people focused because that's Harbaugh's strength. You could argue like keep your team focused. The world could be blowing up all around you. And for them, it kind of does feel that way, but they are able to just go in, play the game, focus on it. And then, you know, <laughs> we see, you know, the, the after the game, you see the emotions come out because they've been bottled in. They've been so focused. And then suddenly they can kind of just, you know, what they're really thinking comes out. And I thought that was absolutely a beautiful moment at the end of the uh, the Penn State Michigan game. But yeah, I think I think those are absolutely some of those elements, you know, but that kind of goes into the other direction. What are some of the red flags that you think are out there for coaching staffs these days? It's a good question. So I think that um, two things that I'd say are tied is I think just in general attention to detail. And I mean that in terms of on the field, right? Like I think that people who manage games poorly, manage clock and timeouts poorly, uh, just things like that. I think that that's certainly something that I look at. And, And along with that, just teams that aren't fundamentally sound. Like teams that just make silly mistakes. Because one thing as I get further into this industry that I feel like I realize is that teams take on the personality of their head coach, which makes sense. I mean, they're hiring everybody, they're recruiting everybody underneath them. But I think it really starts to show up, you know, when you have 
uh, when you talk to people at Alabama, like it's a bunch of Saban clones, right? Like they they all are focused. They're all intense. They're all, uh, again, the attention to detail is unbelievable and it goes through the program. And I think that you have examples of coaches where they're much more loose or they're just, you know, they're, they're not as engaged. And I think that that comes through. And, and so I think that when I see a coach who, again, just isn't good at the little things, who doesn't care about the little things, is willing to overlook the little things. I think that the, the higher the stage that you go to, the more that that gets exposed. And, you know, one I, I, one that I'll point to, and this is a national championship winning coach, but I, I think that Ed Orgeron is a good example of this. You know, he he obviously was so dialed in on the recruiting side and he kind of, and he made some good hires, obviously, that let the football stuff happen. But it became clear just how underwhelming the product was when they finally got everything right. You know, when they finally got coaches who could kind of compensate for his shortcomings. But again, you know, th- this was a consistent thing. They didn't develop, I don't think, as well as they could have. I don't think that they worked together. I don't think that they had an overarching schematic plan until the moment that they did. And it all came together and they won a national championship. Absolutely. You know, and when I look for negative things, I tend to go towards kind of the inverse of what we were just talking about on positives. For me, it's a coach that is resistant to change, especially, you know, things that are absolute. There's one thing to be, as I said, Nick Saban and like, you know, I'm not a fan of this, but I'll do it. If you guys want it, be prepared for the consequences, you know, and and moves into it, whatever. Now he's fine at everything they've thrown at him, the portal, the, uh, uh, NIL, et cetera. But then you get someone like Dabo Swinney, who seems, ex- I mean, and who is also a national championship caliber coach, who I don't think anyone can argue has taken Clemson to some ext- some heights that they could have only dreamed of. And and I'm not I'm not going to be like one of those callers who we dealt with. That, that still was one of the funny moments earlier this season. But <laughs> I think it's interesting to me because then we're watching him be very resistant to the portal year after year. And we're watching the struggles that are happening now. And I don't know, is it pride? Is it, you know, because I mean, a lot of head coaches didn't like it, but they've adapted to it. What to think that you're so special makes me a little bit hesitant. And again, I, he's done so much. That's been so well, you know, the other one who might be interesting might be Mike Gundy only because sometimes you sense like he's just doing it his own way, win or lose, you know, he'll, he'll go and do some incredible games to win Bedlam. And then, Oh, Hey, we're going to go to UCF and get blown out. You know, I, I honestly, with him, I can't tell what's going on half the time, but also there, there's a certain sort of like, don't tell me how to do this. I'm a man. I'm now 50, whatever he is. And I'm just going to keep rolling through all of this. I will actually defend him. So I, I think that, um, so I, I think to, to jump off of what you're saying, flexibility is key in college football. I think that being inflexible at this point and unwilling to adapt, you can point to Jimbo Fisher, right? That's something that ultimately doomed him. You can point to Dabo Swinney and the way things are going down right now. You can point to some of the issues that I was had and the issues that they might have uh, whenever the Big Ten West goes away. I actually think that Gundy actually, it, he publicly, he puts on a very like, I'm not dealing with this front he's actually been more schematically evolutionary i is that the right way to phrase it than than anybody would expect right so you know he saw in the big 12 over the past couple of years people have really moved to a 335 to take away some of those uh some of that spread passing game uh he hired 
somebody who's very well regarded, Brian Nardo in the three three five, who coached at a lower level, but he had success with that with Mike Yersichu again a million years ago at this point. But uh, but he did, you know, and offensively, he's kind of seen uh, people have moved away from the pure spread game, and there is a lot of power now. There is a lot of uh, you know outside zone things like that to try to take advantage then too of the three three five. So I, I think that he actually has done a better job than people realize of staying ahead of the curve. I was worried that this was going to be the year that it all came to a head and he didn't, but it's actually started to happen a little bit better. Uh, the, the UCF game aside, because I don't, they, they, they played, I mean, you want to talk about their Super Bowls. This is their Super Bowl of all time to go and beat Oklahoma. And I think that, that was just a letdown game. <laughs> <laughs> Absolutely. And I think I, I'm, yeah, no, I think we can talk Iowa a little more on that. <laughs> I think they were, they were a better candidate than Oklahoma state. Absolutely. You know, Looking at, because obviously we talk a lot about the coaches and the teams that are currently in contention for the being the, the playoff because we're a college football survivor show. But there's plenty of coaches just on the outside. Um, and who do we think and who do you think specifically are the coaches that are doing the things right to build teams into a contender? If not the program they're at now, perhaps someone that another team could throw a bunch of money at to come and do for them. Yeah, it's a good question. So I will say uh, one one guy who I do want to give special mention to who's on our list right now is Dan Lanning at Oregon. I think that he has he's just a very smart, adaptive coach, I think, who has taken a lot of the best of Kirby Smart and I think added his own spin to it as well. You see it in terms of the aggressiveness, you know, people want to get all caught up in the analytics thing. But but I think that it's just a different way to look at games is the biggest thing. He has been willing to do that. Uh, offensively, they are diverse. They are varied. They, they do a lot of different stuff defensively they can beat you in almost any given way Uh, i'm just a really big fan of what he's able to do and i think that you know whether it's this year or whether it's another year i mean they're going to be in the college football playoff very soon i think that they have a they have a case right now to be the best team in college football i don't think it's i I wouldn't put them at number one but i I think that they are easily in that conversation and uh, I, I think it's potentially only going to get better and I also love the fact that he's continued to recruit at a really really high level um you know I think another coach that we have to look at is Lance Leipold somebody who has really of course uh gotten a lot of attention this coaching cycle you know apparently Michigan State might be interested apparently Texas A&M might be interested Mississippi State might be interested though I don't know if they could get him at this point frankly and also he might stay at Kansas I mean he, he really does like it there but I think that you look at somebody who uh has been a program builder at the division three level before he was at Wisconsin Whitewater won a bunch of national championships I, I think has done a great job of coming up and adjusting um just just finding a way to uh to fit the personnel he can acquire but also to to find personnel to fit what he wants to do. And I think that they've also done a good job of using the transfer portal in order to kind of aid those endeavors. So uh, I, I think that he's an up-and-coming coach. And actually, I'll mention one more who, again, could be a Texas A&M candidate. I'm going to mention Jeff Trailer from UTSA. I think that uh, that he's a coach who has built something. I mean, UTSA only started a football program in 2011, and he has them as the best program for two years in a row in Conference USA. Now he has them as one of three favorites in the American Athletic Conference in their first year. He, again, totally understands the NIL component, totally understands the transfer portal component, totally understands the high school recruiting component. Uh, I I think that whether it's at uh, Texas A&M or anywhere else, 
when he gets a chance to move on, I think that uh, that Jeff Trailer is going to be a coach who has a real chance to create a college football playoff team. You know, when I'm looking at some of the coaches that are out there, and I, I think my idea is, because I, I agree with everyone you picked, and Dan Lanning especially was one of the ones that was I had attention, especially since Oregon, and especially as long as Phil Knight is still alive, <laughs> is absolutely willing to throw whatever he needs to, to make that work. So I'm wondering, when people are like, oh, he's going to get hired away, I'm like, will he? You know, I mean, unless he doesn't like being there because they, they have all that new stuff. Everything there seems to have been built in the last 12 years. You know, everything's awesome in, in, in that on that campus over in Eugene. But, um, you know, I feel candidate. I mean, because, again, his team is has been a contender on and off all season. They just don't have a defense. Brian Kelly, more so than Lincoln. Riley. I think Brian Kelly can adapt. I think. Obviously, he's very probably painfully aware of how bad that defense is right now and how they have a phenomenon at quarterback and, and, you know, kind of like USC, except I know Brian Kelly can adapt. I know at Notre Dame, he has made them at least get to the championship game, get into the playoff. I think he has that capability to find people and accept that, you know, there have to be some changes on one side of the ball or the other to get there. And I think that's why LSU hired him. So I'm, I'm optimistic that he is a coach who could make their team into a CFB contender. If LSU was a contender next year, no one would be shocked. Everyone's like, yep, that's Brian Kelly. That's exactly what he was meant to do. You know, he just needed a couple of years to get it started. If I were going to go even more wild card, and even wild card, I think is a bit of a push on this. Mario Cristobal, only because Miami isn't, they're not great. Okay, we know this. They've had a whole bunch of issues, quarterback being a major problem for them. But I mean, they gave Florida State, granted their rivals, a good run. They were ranked for quite a while there before they kind of fell apart in unexpected ways or especially against Georgia Tech. Um, But at the same time, I mean, we're seeing that increase in talent level there. We're seeing Miami slowly becoming like nascent version of the Miami of the 90s, the Miami of the 80s. That kind of or if you really want to end it in 2001, just the terrifying programs we started seeing coming out of there. So I, I will say he's also one of my candidates, especially if he can turn it around. Um, which it seems like he's got it going in the right direction, even though Miami's one of those teams everyone likes to dislike. And I get it. Trust me, I went to school that was like that as well. But I think at the same time, I can recognize there's some element of increase there. And the next one, the other random one I would put out there is Eli Drinkwitz. Only because what's going on at Mizzou cannot be denied. And he was building up recruiting classes. Everyone was saying, like, if anything, they were like, why are they not doing better considering who they're bringing in? Well, suddenly look at them now. Um, they are absolutely have asserted themselves as the third best team in the SEC after Alabama and Georgia, especially after what they did against Tennessee. So it's kind of an interesting circumstance there. I would put Eli there. I don't know if anyone would hire him away. At least I don't know any of the top schools are necessarily looking for him. I think Mizzou, I'm not sure where his um, contract is, but those would be, he'd be another person out there. I, he, at least for this season and based on what he's been building and saying he's building, I feel a little more confidence in, in Mizzou right now with him at the helm. No, I, I think it's a good choice. I will mention on the Mario front, I did see a lot of people saying, uh, would it be possible for Mario to get the same suspension as Jim Harbaugh and just not be able to coach on game day so that he can do everything to build our program except have to make fourth quarter decisions? <laughs> but no, I, I think that he's doing a very good job of building up this program. If we want to get a little like even more off board, because you know that I love to get into the weeds, I think both Arizona schools have some really interesting coaches. Jed Fish at Arizona and, uh, uh, oh my gosh, I'm blanking on his name right now, uh, Kenny Dillingham at Arizona State. 
I think two coaches who just get it, who understand what their programs are about, who understand what it takes to take them to the next level. Just two really, really smart guys. And it hasn't worked so far for Arizona State, but it reminds me a lot of Jed Fish's first year at Arizona, where they had a lot of good ideas. It didn't convert into wins, but it eventually did. Yeah, it's way too early to 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 count out Kenny Dillingham right now. I mean, it's his first season. There's Jalen Rashada got injured. I mean, there's so many things that you could say, like, give them, give them a couple more years. And I think he's got them in the right direction. I mean, just ask UCLA. <laughs> that was that was a heck of a win for them. And yeah, Arizona, absolutely. Jet Fish, you know, I love watching the uh Arizona fans. Some of them have gotten a, like, welcome to the fish tank. You know, um, <laughs> they're absolutely loving what they're seeing from their Wildcats. And, you know, that's great. I still remember, you know. I uh, I think they're still the only. Well, of course, now it's irrelevant. They were the. I think they were the only Pac-10 slash Pac-12 team who had never made the Rose Bowl. And well, now they, they theoretically could, but they'll be a Big 12 team. So who knows? We'll see as that moves forward. You know. By the way, the total wild card, just for the sheer, I think, just to give the press something to write about on a level that would just take things to a nuclear level. Texas A&M needs to hire Deion Sanders. If they did that, the amount of writing, the amount of stress, the amount of chaos would be on a chart I can't even fathom. That's that that would reinvent everything. Can you imagine? Can you- <laughs> I do not want the online cyberbullying apparatuses of Texas A&M and Deion Sanders to combine because I don't think that I don't think that my mental health could handle it if that were to happen. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, can you imagine he goes in there like I can get us a new st- I can get us all the players we need. We just got to redo the whole the whole roster with A&M money. Oh, my goodness. Like it's going to make it's going to make firing Jimbo seem like a discount at that point. You know? <laughs> oh, my goodness. Well, you know, if that happens, we'll talk about it, but we'll see. I'm, I'm curious to see how this all changes out. It's still early on. I think uh, I think we're seeing a little bit of. um Oh, Coach X was fired. I better fire mine just so I can say our name is in the our name is in the pool for for whatever candidates are out there. Particularly, I think when, for example, when Boise State let go of their head coach, I wasn't surprised to see suddenly Brady Hoke has announced his retirement, um, quote unquote. So there we go. I think next we'll go ahead and discuss a little bit of staff rankings, coaching rankings for the actual contenders right now for the college football playoff. Next on the College Football Survivor Show. The College Football Survivor Show, where playoff survival is always on the line. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. So now that we've had a chance to talk about what we look for in college football coaches, especially for teams contending for the college football playoff, let's look at the contenders we have right now. So we've got our top nine and whoever ends up in the playoff is almost certainly coming out of this group. Shehan, who do you put as your number one coaching staff? among the the playoff contenders this season. So this actually is more difficult than you'd think, just because you have to figure out how much to weigh the head coach versus the coordinators. And for me, 
I the coordinators obviously have some questions, but like you got the greatest coach of all time, man. So number one, I have Alabama. Nick Saban as head coach, uh, Tommy Reese's offensive coordinator, Kevin Steele as defensive coordinator, a really experienced staff around them. I this is one of his, I don't want to say it's one of his weaker staffs, but it's one of his less proven staffs. But it's it's Nick Saban. And also, by the way, it's Kevin Steele, who's a pretty well-known and well-regarded name on defense. Yeah, absolutely. I uh, he was it's so funny, too. I wonder where I would have been midseason if I would have said, like, well, he's good, but I, maybe he's lost a little bit. He's sort of a a, a timeless person, but not necessarily. But he, this season to do what they've done after that Texas loss, USF weirdness, they have become this dominant, dominant force. What they did to Kentucky just went right through them, seeing them adapt to take advantage of Milrow's strengths. But to me, it also boils down to Saban's willingness to again go with who he's got, go with go with the team, go with trust his coordinator, not necessarily force the coordinator to follow something that may or may not be working. Penn State, but you know, uh, it's just interesting to see that. And I, I agree, they were my number one, absolutely. I think I had a little bit more trouble ranking. This is one of those rare times where number one was the easiest thing to rank. Like I'm like, okay, that there's there is no doubt in my head that he's the best coach right now, and and especially among the contenders this season. Now, for number two, I'd be curious to know where you went, because there are different ways you could parse this out, especially depending if you went like a very strict order or if you thought of it almost like tiers and then kind of had to parse your way through each tier. Where did you go for your number two coach? I think that at this point, Kirby Smart is closer to Nick Saban than everybody else is to him. And so I have him number two. I have Georgia number two. I think that if... Todd Monken was back, I would have at least considered them for the number one spot. Mike Bobo is a notable decline, and I think that you've seen that play out this year. But I still think that it puts Georgia a hair above everybody else for number two. I think there's a lot of argument to be made for that. I had him as a very close number three, because first of all, the very factor that you're contending for your third consecutive national title with an incredible win streak that that speaks to a lot of things, not just your coordinators and your and your head coach, but as a group. And I think to some extent that comes from Kirby Smart and comes and is goes moves down to the entire staff, the ability to stay focused, even when you can have an off game. And they had some close calls, the Auburn game, for example, but they've managed to not only keep it together in games where they almost seem to get away from them, but they've seemed to have gotten even stronger. I mean, Ole Miss, you know, they were put in their place. We saw Georgia assert themselves and do exactly what we expected to, to come from them in every aspect of the game. And I think that staff absolutely proved itself. For my number two, I went and I, again, I debated myself about like, where am I seeing a head coach who seems to have made a strong influence and, and a staff with a strong influence that just gets it done and keeps everything focused. And that had to be Michigan. I think I was more convinced of it after this week. Because we're literally watching a team where if things stay the way they are, we're going to say like six of those games weren't even coached by Jim Harbaugh, you know, in the regular season. So to some extent that that speaks to the staff he has. I mean, they were rotating who was the interim coach in that first group of games that they did the first three games. And then we saw Sharon Moore do that and, you know, decide like, you know what? Running game's working. (laughs) Run it 32 times in a row with that pass interference call. But I mean, that was... that to me also just says across the board as a staff and 
the Michigan defense is so strong that, again, that that speaks to Jesse Minter's ability. So we just see this staff that across the board is doing well. And I think, again, Harbaugh is very much in that Saban-esque kind of zone of like, hey, you know, his strength is just getting everything organized, keeping people focused, recruiting in people and managing all of the different aspects to, to put together the team that they're fielding right now. No, I had them as a very close number three. And I actually heavily considered them at number one. I, I think that they have a very legitimate case for number one. Because like you said, two really, really good coordinators, a lot of great position coaches when you look around this unit. Obviously, they've developed multiple Joe Moore Award winning and uh, finalist offensive lines. And the head guy, obviously, you know, whatever you want to say about Jim Harbaugh, he succeeded everywhere. I mean, literally everywhere. He's won now back-to-back Big Ten championships. Uh, he created the team that won many uh, Pac-12 championships whenever he was at Stanford. He led a team to the Super Bowl. Like, Jim Harbaugh has not failed as a head coach basically anywhere he's ever coached. And so I think that um, number three felt very fair for for where they are right now. But, uh, I mean, I, I didn't do tiers as much, but that top three to me is a tier if you want to break it off like that. Absolutely. I had that same thought. I, to me, the top three were were no brainer. And then I got a little fuzzier because I'm curious to hear who your number four is. Mine, yeah. um, I, I actually, I'll let you go first. I'm almost <laughs> like, I'm just curious to see where you're going to go with this. Yeah, I think it got much more difficult from here because, you know, I, I want to say maybe four through, I mean, maybe four through eight. Like, yeah, I think That's you could exactly have, from yeah, me. toss them into a hat. <laughs> I, I mean, are we just going to say that Louisville's nine just right now? Yes. Yeah, I'm like, like Louisville, I, the way, especially after that UVA game, I'm like, yeah. they just are scooting on by and hanging on for dear life. So, I, I think that, I think that Brom on his own is like, you know, I think that he probably deserves to be a little bit Which higher. Brom? Sorry. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but, uh, it, it, this is, I mean, this is like the best coaches in college football, right? And I think that especially when you look at their coordinator staff, it's not quite as impressive. So I, I think that Louisville is a staff that will move up this list in the coming years. We we don't have to put them there right now. This is my number four is a staff where I actually think in a weird way that the head coach is the weaker link on it and the rest of the staff is pretty incredible and that's texas so so the reason that i say that i mean you've got a defensive coordinator and pete kwitkowski who has a top five defense in the country i was actually looking yesterday we did a call for the fwaa all-america team they have the two highest graded defensive uh interior defensive linemen in the nation number one and number two tavondre sweat and byron murphy it is it's Murphy, right? I always mix up Byron Murphy and Byron Vaughn's. I think it's Byron Murphy. Um, but, you know, so just a crazy, like that is that is the advantage that uh, Texas has. That That is the best part of their team. They've got the best special teams coordinator in the country in Jeff Banks. They've got the best, one of the best offensive line coaches in the country in Kyle Flood. They've got a fantastic group of, uh, of skill position assistants. They've got a great secondary coach. Like they are really, really good everywhere. And Steve Sarkeesian is an elite offensive coordinator. I still have some questions about some of his stuff as a head coach. But, like, again, like, that's the level of nitpicking that I have to do to, to say anything about that staff. I think it's one of the best overall staffs in the entire country. And so, for me, I ended up having them at number four. You know, I put them a little lower. I put them at number six. But I think perhaps my... 
my judgment was also influenced by the the way they've let leads get ahead of them. I think over the period of the season, I'm kind of like, okay, they clearly are not keeping the team focused. I think that was what, what got me the most. And to me, that's a coaching thing, especially with the game with Houston, with the game with Kansas State, and now nearly letting TCU back into the game. I'm wondering what's going on there to keep the team ready for that fourth quarter and ready to to hang on. And that is something where, as I've been watching Texas play over the season, Again, we, we, we keep wondering what happened after the Red River rivalry to both of these teams, um, Oklahoma and Texas. But I, I agree with you. The amount of talent there, and I agree, Sark is, oddly enough, the weakest link in all of it. But coming out of the Saban school, it seems like he's also willing to allow his coordinators to do what they need to do. And we're seeing that on the field and why Texas is suddenly a physical team that can, as we saw what they did to Alabama. I don't know how they do in a rematch, but we certainly saw what they were able to do early on in the season. I think that's a good call, and I, I, I could see why you place them that high. I, for my number four, and again, I think to, to an agreement, we, we, you could interchange some of these teams quite a bit. I decided to go with a younger team only because I was so impressed with how they did, which, and that's Dan Lanning's group at Oregon, because Will Stein, Junior Adams, offensive coordinator, defensive coordinator, both sides of the ball are completely sound right now. Um, that's, you know, if, if you can set aside the aggressive that cost them the Washington game, maybe over aggressiveness with the fourth down call. And those are things that Lanning took on himself. I think other than that, they're a well-rounded team that is showing an ability to excel in all aspects of the game. I mean, Oregon right now, as we've said, like if they were to win out, I don't think anyone's going to be shocked right now. I think we're all, everyone's very much with beta. First of all, goodness gracious, Pac-12. Thank you for this entertaining next couple of weeks. But I I think they are right now the team I would put at number four in terms of just the quiet consistency. I think that's it. They're just there. They're solid on both sides of the ball. And whatever mistakes that were made are the gambles you expect a head coach to make. And they just didn't work out. But if they had, if one of those had, suddenly we'd be talking about like, oh, my gosh, look at Oregon. So and we still are at this point. No, it's a great staff. You mentioned, uh, obviously, some young guys on offense. Uh, they also have Tosh Lupoy is running their defense right now, who's somebody who's a great recruiter and also has experience coaching at some of the best schools in the country. Uh, I think they've developed on the offensive line at a really high level, which is something that you expected with a team largely recruited by Mario Cristobal, but still. And uh, and I think that Dan Landing is kind of the piece that ties it all together. I, I was very high on them as well. I had them at number six, but again, probably, probably a little bit of a similar group. I think that probably that four to six is a little bit of a, a tier mm-hmm. for me. Um, I held them slightly behind because they're still a little less proven than uh, I would say than some of the other ones on this list, but not by much. Uh, I think that again, if, if we're having this conversation in a year, I think that Oregon is comfortably number four, if they're able to, to keep their staff together as well, which I think, I think people will definitely be going after Will Stein and some of these really good young coaches that they have on staff. So a good staff overall, I, I think that your logic on it makes a lot of sense. Uh, number five, I had a, a a really hard time placing this staff, and that's Ohio State, mm-hmm. and it's it. I don't want to say that it's to the same level as uh, as Texas, but like it's also one where I'm like I know what this whole staff can do, 
And I am starting to get a not worried about the head coach, but I kind of feel like I don't feel as good about him as I did at one point. Uh, not because I don't think that he's really good at his job, but just because I think that he has some questions that he needs to answer. And he's at Ohio State. He's at, you know, again, I mentioned two programs in the entire country that I think run themselves, and he's at one of them. And so, uh, but you look around, I mean, Jim Knowles as a defensive coordinator, I lauded that hire when it happened. Obviously, I, I am familiar with him from his time at Oklahoma State and Duke before that. Uh, and he's, it's only taken two years and he's completely, completely turned that unit around. Uh, I think the fact that, uh, you know, you still have a guy like Larry Johnson on staff as defensive line coach, that you have Tony Alford still on as running backs coach, not even to mention Brian Hartline, who obviously is running the offense now, but is also wide receivers coach. These, the guys that I just mentioned are all people who have been considered for head coaching jobs in college football. Like it is a really robust staff. And so I, I really like who they have there. And, um, you know, ultimately, I think that this is, again, one of the stronger staffs in college football. The more that I talk to myself, I feel like I need to put them at four ahead of Texas. But I think that uh, number five is a, is a pretty fair uh, spot for them as well. I had trouble placing them uh, at that whole middle group. So I have them at seven. But to me, it's almost like a, a middle tier. Like I, they're all great. I just don't know where to put them for those reasons, because Jim Knowles is absolutely tremendous. And and as you said, the the strength of that team is their defense. I mean. To some extent, the the problems that Ohio State has are ones that are, I mean, they're able to work around them. I mean, there's been all kinds of questions about, you know, uh, Kyle McCord. Is he the, the type of quarterback that can take Ohio State all the way? They've been able to work with that. They've been able to work around. Granted, Marvin Harrison's a phenomenal person to have as one of your people you're throwing to. But uh, across the board, they're able to, to adapt and they're able to play. And once again, I think you're right about Ryan Day as necessarily. Is he the strongest part of all of this? I, I'm not sure. But um, certainly he's the most entertaining part of all of this. I mean, I still can't <laughs> get over it. Where did that come it. from? I'm, I'm he was, have... somebody, said he, somebody clearly told him he was boring over the offseason, and he's like, all right, I can, I can deal with that. I can do something. We need more of these WWE-style uh, uh, promos being cut by coaches because that early part of the season was glorious for them. I was like, is this, is this the future of college football? If so, I am so here from it. Because in the 1980s, I was a total WWF because I'm old WWF fan, and that, that we just need some of that. We need some Nikolai Volkov, some Iron Sheik stuff going on here. The real question is, will they be able to uh, to start a rivalry between somebody who was born like later than 1950? Like, like will he be able to cut a promo on somebody who's within 30 years of his age? Oh my goodness. I need him. We need, we need a Gen Z coach as soon as possible, just for that kind of a mix up. We need <laughs> or like, you know, coach so-and-so said you're blah, blah, blah. Like what? what? Sus. <laughs> we need that kind of, I, I'm starting to learn Gen Alpha slang here. All right. So I could, I could toss out some of that, you know, to all my, my Rizzlers out there and all those, and those other things. Yeah. I'm, I'm old enough now that I can make these things really painful. For those kids now apparently ohio is 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 part of the uh the slang now in the I, youths so you know obviously my child uh whenever they're born will be gen alpha most likely and uh yeah so we had a whole conversation at the baby shower about how just they talk about ohio all the time i i don't i i don't know what i'm going to do if my future child just talks about ohio all the time except for that i guess it'll be just like my twitter mentions 
<laughs> well, you know, it'll be really fun to see in about 10 years how the applications start changing for some of these colleges. Like if suddenly there's a whole generation of kids who want to either be Buckeyes or Bobcats. They just want to go to schools in Ohio in the name. You know, is that is that going to be the next step? Is Athens, Ohio going to be like this next college mecca? Who knows? We'll, we'll look at that. But going back to the college staffs, um, I, you know, for me, number five, I'm a Florida State. And I think I was just kind of impressed by what they've been able to pull off as a program, as a group with Alice Atkins, Adam Fuller, Randy Shannon, who clearly is, has been around quite a long time, and Mike Norvell. They are able to do what they need to do. Um, they're able to come back and win games, which they have now had to do several times. Um, and to me, the, what they've been able to do is, is purely a product of their coaching staff right now. I mean, Florida State, is, it's still, I feel like they're still asserting themselves as the height of their their 90s, especially in the 90s under Bobby Bowden. I think they're still trying to find that that spot back. And to see where they are now, especially as bad as it got, I, I credit that whole coaching staff for that. But again, it's a very malleable group. But for them, for me, they were number five. Where did you have them? Yeah, that, that's interesting. So I have them number eight. Again, this is a list of some of the best staffs in college football. This is not like intended to be a slight uh, by any means. I think for me, I because because just to go through, right, it, I have Bama, Georgia, Michigan, Texas, Ohio State, Oregon. And my number seven was Washington. And for me, I think the thing that I valued about Washington versus Florida State was just how quickly and effectively they were able to turn things around. And certainly, I mean, look, Kalen DeBoer was not digging out of quite the hole that Mike Norvell was coming up, absolutely. But I think that at this point, I'd say that he's made a better team in a shorter amount of time. Maybe that'll prove to be wrong. I don't know. You know, we'll have to wait and see. But uh, I just think that what Washington's been able to do I mean, just with like an like an introduction, I think, of culture and attention to detail. I mean, Kalen DeBoer, for people who don't know, was an NAIA coach and completely ran through everybody during his time at Sioux Falls. He had a 67 and three record in NIA, NAIA with three national championships and an NIA. And oh, my gosh. A, it's a, fun. A, I, I've, a, yeah. <laughs> I've written about the NAIA and you get so used to having to try and say that even in their headquarters, they have trouble saying it sometimes. (laughs) I love it. Uh, but the, the, they also had a an appearance in the national championship game that they lost. So like mm-hmm. he's won forever, uh, 12 and six in two years at Fresno State and nine and three in his only non-pandemic year before he ended up getting this job. He was also uh, an offensive coordinator who helped set up that Indiana run during the pandemic. Like he he shows up and places win. And then Ryan Grubb, you know, a $2 million offensive coordinator at this point is somebody that Alabama wanted, that everybody in the country wanted, and they were able to keep him around. Like, this is a really good staff. I, I will say, I, I don't necessarily know that they're as complete a staff as, uh, you know, I think you could make the case that Florida State is, right? I mean, obviously, defensively, it's a, it's a little bit more of a work in progress still. And uh, William Ng, the, the, head co- the defense coordinator over there, isn't as much of a known name as Randy Shannon is. But I just think that when you look at Kalen DeBoer as a head coach, I, I think that he has been damn near a miracle worker. Uh, as a head coach and so for me that was that was a guy who I felt like uh, 
I had to have just a, a half step ahead of Florida State's. No, I appreciate this difference because I actually had them at number eight only because I think I'm, I'm hesitant to say they're totally proven at this level because for the two years they've had been at Washington, the staff has had Michael Penix Jr. Sure. And I think when I, I'm, he is such a tremendous talent. Now it's not quite as imbalanced as USC is, but some of those games they've had where, again, that Arizona State game where the defense had to bail them out on a pick six because the offense just stopped working that one day. Um, I'm a little more hesitant in how uneven they've been. And that has got me wondering, like, if will we see a situation where in a few years we're like, oh, when you take away that Heisman caliber quarterback, oh, the team actually is only so-so. I'm not sure. And again, he had a great quarterback, too. I mean, Fresno State has had its own success with, with some of the talent they've been able to recruit. Um, under center. So those are my hesitations for why I put them a little lower on my list, because I think I want to see as a staff how they do when they move to the next step um, after this kind of, I mean, frankly, you could say the same thing about a lot. I mean, I'm yeah, very Oregon, Florida State, I think. Yeah, yeah, I mean, is uh, what, what is Florida State without Jordan Travis and Keon Coleman? You know, I think that, yeah. uh, well, and, and Johnny Wilson more than Keon Coleman, you know, so I, I understand the question, right? But what I will say is, one, I mean, Michael Penix was a quarterback at another school and it did not go like this, obviously. And I think the other thing, too, is that, I mean, I don't want to be unfair to Chris Peterson. This team is probably better than the 2016 playoff team, whether or not they end up making the playoff, because I think that the Pac-12 in 2023 is much more difficult than in 2016. And mm -hmm. the fact that no matter who he's been able to pluck out of thin air uh, over there, the fact that they've been able to already put themselves in a position to be one of the best teams in the country in such short order. And by the way, for two years in a row, they went to 11 and two last year as well. And they also have the second longest winning streak in the country uh, among FBS programs, only behind Georgia. The only team that's won more games in a row than them is Georgia. So, Again, I, I totally understand the question. And and by the way, one piece that I also need to keep an eye on is they got to recruit a little better than they are. They have a top 100 kid coming in, but like they have the 40th class overall right now in 2024. They didn't have an elite class in 2023. They're going to have to find a way to, to create that level of talent, I think. And Florida State, we have seen that. So there are some questions, but I think that what Kalen DeBoer has done to this point is pretty unbelievable. Absolutely. So it sounds like we've we've got a good lineup here. I think we more or less agree with where we line teams up. I mean, Alabama, Michigan, Georgia, however you want to sort them out, that three seem to be currently operating at a tier as far as coaching staffs in their own realm. And, and that's probably a huge reason why they're part of this list. Um, Louisville, we're just still too early. You guys all just got there. Feels like these teams are getting too close. And yeah, no, I think that middle group, it, it's, it's an open question. We'll see how this, this works out. What a great way to wrap this up. Looking at the top coaching staff, it's been an exciting week of college football. Really looking forward to this next week. We're going to hopefully see maybe a few more of these teams fall off of the island, or perhaps we'll see Oregon State play their way into consideration. Just wanted to say on behalf of both of us that we thank you as our listeners. We encourage you to go and participate on our X account at CFB Survivor Show, where you can vote on our polls, message us your thoughts. Be sure to like, rate, subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. I also want to thank 
our producer, Joey Aliberti, who's been behind the scenes and helping us get this show together. I'm Bob Ekayeri. He's Shehan Jayaraja, and you can find his work at cbssports.com. Thanks for listening. This is the College Football Survivor Show. The College Football Survivor Show, where playoff survival is always on the line.